Hey guys, um, super excited about our guest today. Mm-hmm, me have, too, me too. Um, a longtime labor lawyer, Dan mm-hmm. Kavalik, who's just written a book, canceled this book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. But um, I'm excited to talk to him because we can talk about the Amazon union defeat. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about some of his stories as a labor lawyer, how he came to this view on cancel culture and all of that. So it should be good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I would understand if somebody listening to this rolls their eyes initially when they hear the cancel culture thing, because we're all sort of tired of it. But that's part of the. I hate the wang- I hate the word. Yeah, the term is like, culture. just anytime anybody says that, my gut reaction is like, shut the fuck up. You just shut up. I fucking can- cancel culture this, cancel culture that. I think of like Brian Kilmeter, Steve Ducey. <laughs> like, Ooh, cancel culture. So yeah, partly that's part of why I want to discuss it though, because it's nice to get non-dumb perspectives on it. And this yes. guy is a is a labor lawyer lefty. So yeah. nobody could question his lefty credentials. He's written anti-war books. Like this guy's the real deal, Holyfield. Yes. And so for him to write something on cancel culture, I'm actually interested in his take because I think it's going to be nuanced and intelligent. Yes, but we want to start with the most important news of the week, which is how Americans feel about various states. So yes, <laughs> Americans ranking various highly states. highly controversial list that came out from YouGov about which states are the best, which states are the worst, ranking from 1 to 51 because it includes the District of Columbia. But it does include Puerto Rico, which is messed up because that's a U.S. territory. So they include D.C., which is not a state, but they don't include Puerto Rico, which is a territory. Yeah, true. I would, low-key... If we put Puerto Rico in there, it's getting top half for me. It's gotta be. It's gotta be up there just from like the beauty. Of course. And by the way, let me just just explain to everybody real quick. The respondents were asked to choose the better of two states from a list of the 50 states in Washington D.C. in a series of head-to-head matchups. So the figures that they show here is the percentage of times each state won their matchup. Mm-hmm. So that's how they did it. They gotcha. said, do you like this state or this state? And then you're going to get the number, the percent that picked one over the other. Gotcha. So, anyway. Gotcha. And so uh, I do have to say on your Puerto Rico point, if we include Puerto Rico, are we also including Guam, yeah. Marianas Islands? You would put them American all Samoa. American Samoa. Okay. All it's, right. It's, I mean, consistent. It's and, a consistent Yes, standard. but my point is like either leave D.C. off or if you put D.C. in, then put in all the shit, put in all the territories. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I got gotcha. like, You can't just include D.C. but then say sort fuck Puerto Rico. Okay, so let's go through some of the list here. Um, Top five in this order are Hawaii, number one, Mm -hmm. Colorado, Mm -hmm. Virginia, Mm -hmm. Nevada, Mm -hmm. North Carolina, and then I'll go ahead and throw number six in there, Florida, because I know you have a controversial take there. (laughs) The bottom of the list, um, 45 is Indiana, 46, Iowa, then Arkansas, New Jersey, Mississippi, Alabama, D.C. I feel like... Mississippi and Alabama get a little bit of a... I, I actually think that the 51, I understand it for D.C. because people are just like, ugh, lobbyist, corruption, terrible, swamp place. I do think it's unfair. Having lived here in the past, I don't live in the city now, but I obviously spend a lot of time here. I also feel like Mississippi and Alabama are definitely not worse than New Jersey. Yeah. Hard agree. So I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to agree with the New Jersey point. Like... There's definitely some cooler shit in Alabama than in New Jersey. Definitely. New Jersey and Mississippi. New Jersey's just like half of it smells like an anus for, for no sure. reason. Well, um, for, for reasons, but yeah. Right. Terrible petrochemical reasons, yeah, right? Yeah, like dead bodies rotting places and stuff. Yes. Probably. New Jersey, it just wants to be New York, but it's not. Like its whole existence is like, what if I was like New York? And everybody's like, you're not. 
just relax. You're not you know, like New York. I do really appreciate, though, the people who went super hard in defensive New Jersey, like who took the whole just because what you see from 95 is gross. Doesn't mean the whole state's gross. There's the shore. No, it's called the Garden State. You don't understand no, the that state. Shit is gross. No, it's it's a really terrible. State. No, it really is. The only thing. OK, I will give them this. I wouldn't put them dead last okay. on, out of the 50. And here's why. The Sopranos. Great show. Great show. True. Takes place in New Jersey. I think it was shot in New Jersey, too. Mm -hmm. So on that alone, I'm going to be like, all right, maybe 40. 40? Something like that. No. But I will I will agree with you, There though. are not 10 states worse than New Jersey. We could we'd probably think of a bunch of them. Uh... All right, so I will say this, though. Alabama, I agree with you. Mississippi, I think Mississippi is worse than Alabama. I do. And I think I sort of agree with Mississippi being in the bottom 10. You could put it in the bottom 10. I'm chilling with it in the bottom 10. I don't know. I'm, I'm actually a sucker for the Deep South. I think it's a beautiful and uh, interesting place. So I would I would place them higher. I would definitely put Jersey at or near the bottom. I thought you made a good argument for Delaware at the bottom. Yeah. Though. So, no, there's I'm not even this one's open and shut case done. Don't nobody even bother responding or commenting. Just shut the fuck up. Delaware is the worst state because it doesn't even count as a state. That shit is not a state. That shit is a giant tax haven where all the companies go to just avoid paying taxes. You got that and you got the DuPont stuff there. So the whole point of going to Delaware is like, I want to get cancer and be a corporate tax haven. Yeah. And also I'm really fucking tiny because I'm a fake state. It's a fake state. Right. Right. And it's not really when you're driving up to New York. It's not like when you're in Delaware versus when you're in New Jersey. You're like, this is amazing. I mean, yes. It has mm -hmm. very strong Jersey vibes. Yeah, diet, diet Jersey is, yeah. is Delaware, basically. Right. Which yeah. is even sadder. That's incredibly sad. Yeah. Um, so do you agree with Hawaii number one? So I wouldn't personally put Hawaii mm -hmm. number one. Um, however, like I get it. You get why people. I get it. it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's also funny because I was thinking about when people are doing these matchups. Are they thinking about places they want to visit? Are they thinking that places they want to live? Because I to like me, how big they made it. They made it entirely. Uh, and vague. I love that. Yeah. So to me, Hawaii to visit. Sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wonder. I have been there. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, the beaches are spectacular. Very interesting place. Um, but would I want to live there? No, I wouldn't want to live on an island, period. I think I would I would lose my mind. But I get it. I get why it's number one. The one that I you won't be surprised by this. The one I am totally outraged about is Kentucky at 42. Yeah, that's like not... Kentucky is lower than Kansas. That is total bullshit. Kentucky's way lower than Delaware. And look, you know, I am uh, a Kentucky stan when mm -hmm. I lived there. Mm -hmm. I loved it. It's mm -hmm. a great state. It's a beautiful state. It has a lot to offer in terms of food, bourbon, horses, beautiful scenery, interesting political culture, all of that stuff. I would actually probably put Kentucky number one, which I understand but, would not be a popular opinion. Nah, but Kentucky <laughs> at 42 is a total outrage. I agree it's an outrage, but it's also an outrage that you said it should be number one. That's my favorite state. What can I say? Listen, I have... Don't cancel me. I have the right of free speech here, Kyle Kalinske, and you should respect me. I'm opinion. now pro-cancel culture, and I'm going <laughs> to dye my hair pink. Who would you, where, what would you put number one? I sort of agree with Hawaii at number one. Like, really? Again, to mimic your point just a little bit, I, it's not my number one, but if you ask me, without what? looking at the numbers, Kyle, what's, what's number one going to be? what is your number one? I plead the fifth. No, come on, because you want to say Florida. I'm going to say Florida. <laughs> I'm going to say Florida. No. I am a Florida stan. Uh, I don't care. So, Florida again, so everybody what? who's going to disagree, <laughs> save your breath. 
and move along because I'm right about this shit. And I'll go this very simple point, which is just inarguable, that when it's in the rest of the entire country except Hawaii, but in the rest of the entire country in December and January and February when everybody's freezing their damn nuts off and the sun's setting at 4 o'clock and everybody's like, Damn, why am I so miserable and depressed 24-7? Maybe I should kill myself. This is what the rest of the country is thinking. And in Florida, they're laying on a beach, sipping a mojito in 75-degree weather with the sun out and the wind gently hitting the side of your cheek. And it's just, it's everything. There's beaches everywhere. I love golf. There's golf courses everywhere. There's amazing restaurants. You got... Orlando, which is Disney for kids, that's just heaven on earth. Now, I'm not a kid, but I'm also objective enough to know that if you create some shit that's heaven on earth for children, you should probably get some points for that uh, shit. Try being a parent and going to Disney World and then get back to me about heaven on earth at Listen, Disney. It, again, that's not my <laughs> cup of tea, and I agree with you in that scenario. I'd probably be annoyed as fuck, but I, it's like Christmas morning for children every day at that shit. Every day of that shit. And then I don't care that there's a bunch of old, annoying-ass retirees there, you know, who probably drive slow as fuck Col and way like, too many pro-Trump people. I get it. I get it. Characterless, cranky people, terrible drivers. Oh, yeah. And in... Totally flat, uninteresting landscape. And in fucking Wisconsin, landscape. there's very... There's a lot of characters okay, in Wisconsin. I, am I making the case for Wisconsin <laughs> no, right I'm now? Saying, no, I'm not. I'm out Florida because <laughs> people are generally annoying. But you're trying to say Florida as number one. Well, and... my number... You asked me my yes. number one. I actually agree agree that if you're asking me to to talk about it objectively yeah i agree with hawaii at number one okay here's another one that i do not understand and that i actually do find really surprising that people rate it so highly which is virginia yeah, I knew my home state that. like okay it's nice i like it it's it's decent um there are some very beautiful parts especially out towards the mountains really lovely it does have some beaches down in virginia beach but it's so dominated by Northern Virginia, which is like so flavorless and corporate and I, cookie cutter that I just can't, I cannot stand by Virginia at number three. I've been to Virginia a number of times, and I will say I like, there's a place co called Port Royal, mm -hmm. which they almost made the capital of the United States of America. Yes. And there are amazing buildings there that were built in like the 1700s. Yes. On that alone sort of putting you high on the list. I'm not, I agree with you though. Three is too high for I Virginia. Mean, it is a very historic state. And as you know, I am from King George County, which is the gateway to the historic Northern Neck mm -hmm. where our founding father, George Washington was born and raised. In fact, his birthplace very close to my house. So yeah, the his history is interesting. Look, I wouldn't put it at the bottom of the list, but three? Yeah, three, three, I agree, is too high. It's just, that's way too but they, high. But, and I'm surprised by it. But if you hit me with Virginia at like 12, I'd be like, all right. I think that their slogan, Virginia's for lovers, like I think that's really doing a lot of work for them. I think people like... I so, think it's that's, a little obnoxious though. It's be, it's like putting on the... Clearly it worked. It got them to number three. I don't think that's the reason why, <laughs> but it's basically like having a license plate that says, Virginia, we suck dick. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia... Want some doggy style? Like, I think it's creative and lovely. Um, for for lovers. Come about, here and have sex. What do you think about New York at number eight? No, too That's high. It's pretty high ranking. It's too high. Listen, I, I am a New Yorker, so I'm biased in favor of it, if anything. But Loki, everybody's got to hop off New York's nuts. It's not like it's good, but I think you're going to disagree with this, but I really believe this. Every time I've traveled and I've gone to a big city, like not every time, that's overstating it. 70% of the time when I travel and I go to a big city, I'm like... 
this shit is just like New York City. I totally disagree with that. When I was in Montreal, I looked around, I was like, this is like New York City. When I was in Philadelphia, I looked around, I was like, this feels like New York City. Mm. It's just a city. It's just a city. I totally and I'm docking 17,000 points from New York because fucking Wall Street is there and those fuckers are destroying the entire country. All right. Well, that is a strong point, but I do still love New York yeah, City. Eight. I love the energy of it. I loved living there. And I don't think that there is another American city that remotely approaches it. It's a, it is a special city. And I like upstate New York. I think I probably have a, a somewhat more favorable New York overall take, not only because I'm more favorable to the city, but I also like I don't mind the cold. So upstate New York is really beautiful and yes. very scenic. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to be said for that but as well. But that, eight that's is to my me, bias. eight is to me too high. I, I agree. would actually put so Vermont's at 14. Vermont would be in my top 10 or maybe top five. I like Vermont a lot. It's a beautiful state. See, I have a huge bias. Oregon is 16. I anything like Oregon cold, anything cold is it just plummets for me. Yeah. So it, see, I don't know. mind the cold. I like the mountain. I'm more of a mountain person than a I'm more, beach person. I'm more of a desert so person. I like beach and desert. I'm not a big desert so, person. But just to run through it real quick, yeah. Hawaii number one, I understand and agree with, even though it's not my number one. I actually, I understand and agree with Colorado at number two, even though it's not my number two. For mm -hmm. me, that's way further down the list, but I get that people would pick Colorado. Yeah, agree. I agree on Virginia. I think it's a little Colorado too high. Colorado would be high for me. Nevada at number four, I sort of fuck with that because I love... Las Vegas, it's basically like, remember how I just said about Disney World, it's mm. heaven on earth for kids? Mm. Las Vegas is heaven on earth for adults. Mm. I'm sorry, but that, I mean, that really is what it is. Which adults? And then, okay, fair enough. But then also, like, Tahoe is a beautiful place in Nevada where it's in the mountains and there's amazing resorts. I think Nevada is roughly in the right place, even though maybe not, a touch too high. I, I get Nevada. I'm not a desert person and I'm not a Las Vegas person. I do like the politics there. So that, that bumps it up. After the Bernie thing? Yeah. That they, bums it up some notches Nevada, for me. I, low key, I might actually put Nevada higher than four. Really? I just said it. Wow. I just said it. I think California is another one I would put pretty high up because I just... They're 12 I, on the list, by the way. I do not 12. like. I do not like L.A., but I really like the like Northern California is yeah. really beautiful. And it has it's such a big state that it has Huge. something for everybody, whatever your tastes are. So to me, California should get a high ranking. On that on the fact that it's that big alone, I'm saying yes, it, it deserves to be high on the list because there's so much there that you're gonna find something you like, whether right. it's Napa, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you're gonna find some shit that you like. If you like beaches, mountains, That's whatever right. climate you and like. It is a beautiful it's all state. There. It is a beautiful Truly. state. Yeah. And I'll even go as far as to say I love Texas, too. They have Texas at number 10 here. I fuck with that. I don't agree with Texas politically, but the state is beautiful. Mm, I like Austin. That's about where it ends. I, I want to counter that, but I've only been to Austin and <laughs> Dallas for a little bit. Yeah, I've been to Austin, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, and the only one of those places I liked was Austin. So I'm sure there are other good parts of Texas that I haven't personally been to, but it's very colored by my representative sample in which I only liked Austin. Do you like North Carolina at number five? I do. Um, North Carolina, I love the Western. Actually, there are some of the, some of my favorite beaches are in North Carolina. Love the Honor Banks. Mm -hmm. Wilmington is lovely. Um, I also, because I'm a mountain person, I love the Western part of the state. Smoky Mountains out that way. Spent some time there recently. Asheville is super lovely. So I actually do support that. I totally, I love North Carolina. It yeah, was one of the most beautiful, state. beautiful places I've ever been. Um, and in closing on this, I want to move on to the Biden thing, but I do want to say on top of Delaware that I'm mm. docking to number dead last, whether it's 50 or 51, however you want to do it, it belongs dead last. DC on the beautiful sightseeing stuff alone, I'm knocking it up. 
uh, no way I'm putting that dead last. Even though I agree with you, corruption, sleazy, yada, yada. Yeah. Matt Gates, fucking underage people, terrible across the board. Allegedly. But I think D.C.'s a lot higher just on the sightseeing stuff alone. But I'm putting not only is Delaware plummeting to the bottom of the list, Nebraska is plummeting to the bottom mm-hmm. of the list. They inexplicably have Nebraska at number 34. Mm, that's way too high. Way too high. Um, Are you fucking I would kidding put, me? Indiana is very poorly rated here at 45. I think it deserves to be even lower. Mm. I really despise Indiana. I've heard terrible things about it's Indiana. A, yeah. From uh, people everybody say who's they love there. Indianapolis, but every, I mean, I've spent a decent amount of time in Indiana and I am not a fan. And Iowa's at 46. That's about right. I think that should deserve yeah, to be. I kind of like Iowa. Actually. Nah. I kind of like Iowa. Nah, Mayor Pete can go fuck 46. himself. Corn can go fuck itself. Mayor Pete isn't from, well, yeah. He's Indiana. No, I'm not saying he's from Iowa. He won, he, that he did won well the in Iowa him. caucus. Yeah, that was which, all. Who knows was, if they actually, rigged, if he actually, so. well, yeah, if he That's actually not, won don't it. Don't blame Iowans for okay, the DNC's but sti- rigging. But still, fuck the corn. Fuck the corn. Case closed. Okay. <laughs> fuck the corn, we'll am I right? There. All <laughs> fuck right. the corn. Another important story. You want to break this one down? Uh, yeah. So um, Joe Biden came out the other day. There was this planned announced speech that he was going to give on foreign policy. I don't know if it's a speech as much as it's whatever you want to call it. It was like a speech to three reporters in the room. But uh, this decision was long awaited. He was considering behind the scenes whether or not to stay in Afghanistan or withdraw from Afghanistan or something in between. Apparently, he I don't know if you saw this story. He he talked to George W. Bush mm. about what he thinks he should do. He had a conversation with George W. Bush about it. Wow. Now, surprisingly, the report is that Joe Biden is getting out of Afghanistan fully. Now, I want to be clear. The way the media was reporting it is that May 1st was the deadline to get out under a Trump deal that he made with the Taliban. Right. That's a little bit misstating it because I remember reading the details of that story. And Trump wasn't doing a full withdrawal. Trump was keeping some troops there indefinitely, permanently. Right. So what we hear from Biden is Biden saying, no, I'm going to get them all out. But he's not doing it May 1st. He's going to do it on September 11th, which is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. So I want to play for you. This video, this is Biden in two separate occasions talking about his position now, totally getting out of Afghanistan. Take a look at that. The main argument for staying longer is what each of my three predecessors have grappled with. No one wants to say that we should be in Afghanistan forever, but they insist now is not the right moment to leave. In 2014, NATO issued a declaration affirming that Afghan security forces would, from that point on, have full responsibility for this country's security by the end of that year. That was seven years ago. So when will it be the right moment to leave? One more year? Two more years? Ten more years? Ten, twenty, thirty billion dollars more in the trillion we've already spent? Not now? That's how we got here. And in this moment, there's a significant downside risk to same beyond May 1st without a clear timetable for departure. If we instead pursue the approach where America, U.S. exit, is tied to conditions on the ground, we have to have clear answers to the following questions. Just what conditions require to be required to allow us for, to depart? By what means and how long would it take to achieve them? if they could be achieved at all? And at what additional cost in lives and treasure? I've not heard any good answers to these questions. And if you can't answer them, in my view, 
We should not stay. Was it a hard decision to make, sir? No, it wasn't. To me, it was absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. We went for two reasons. We rented bin Laden and the end of safe haven. From the very beginning, if you may recall, I never thought we were there to somehow unify Iraq. I mean, excuse me, Afghanistan. It's never been done. It's never been done. Thank you all for being out here in the rain. It makes a lot. Thank you. Okay, so there's a lot to go through there, but broadly speaking, he absolutely nailed it. I mean, you know, you made the comment to me, that's sort of like he's watching Rising or Secular Talk with the arguments he was using, that him or somebody on his staff was like, hey, what about this? So to comment on his style for a second, he seems like he's half dead. I just want to get that out of the way. Like, he's on some dope benzos and he's just, he's out of, he's just totally not there at the moment. So that's the sad part of it. But I will say, if he actually follows through with that shit, I'll vote for him if he's 75% dead. Because that, I don't give a fuck if you're alive or dead if you're actually getting that out of the wars and doing yeah. good things. So his arguments were, he said, listen, if you don't, if you don't want to leave now, well, when do you want to leave? Like, is it a year? Is it two years? Is it five years? Is it 20 years? Is it never? Right. You know, Lindsey Graham openly says, no, you don't leave. I want to stay there permanently. Right. Okay, well, thank you at least for the honesty. And that's why you got about negative 17%, even in the Republican primary when you ran for president, mm-hmm. which is hilarious, even ran. Um... So he's correct on that point. He says, we don't need conditions. We're going to leave no matter what. And I love that because it's not playing that stupid Washington game of like setting up some fake standards and just using that as an excuse to stay there. Yeah. He's like, no, I'm going to leave no matter what because we should just leave. Then he asks, well, how much money do you want to spend too? Right. You know, nobody, every, everything else. When it comes to something for the people, whether it's universal health care, free college, whatever it is, how you going to pay for it? 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 When it comes to this... Nobody asks how you're going to pay for it. Not a single person ever. And we're still in all these different countries around the world. He also says, well, define for me what victory is. If you can't define for me what victory is, what are we doing here? Obviously, we shouldn't be there if we can't define victory. And probably my favorite part is he says, he's asked if it was a hard decision. He was like, no, it wasn't a hard decision. I want to get out. And then he also says, listen, the original reasons we were given for going in there, we got to get bin Laden and we have to end the safe haven for Al Qaeda. Yep. Bin Laden's been dead for a long time. And according to our own intelligence agencies from years ago, they they released this. There's less than 100 Al Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan today. Yeah. So across the board, he's absolutely nailing it with that answer. And I'm floored because it leads me to believe he might actually want to get us out of there. And if he follows through on that, I will become a Biden stan. Yeah, I mean, I am really blown away by it as well. I have zero. I mean, his answers were perfect. And I think you're right about to me, the most significant part was when he said, what were the original objectives? Yes, because this is the thing. And and the other part of this that that is encouraging to me is it's not like he hasn't already been facing an onslaught from the media. Mm. All these leaks about, oh, there's going to be violence or, oh, you're going to create that safe haven again. It's going to be a gift to Al Qaeda politicians, by the way, Democrats and Republicans have been out there making that case. And then they also have been making this really disingenuous faux feminist (laughs) case of like, you can't leave the women and girls. And this is where his other point about like, okay, are we, if we're going to be serious about securing human rights for women in Afghanistan, tell me what that's going to take. 
Give me a plan to mm -hmm. accomplishing that objective. How many more troops would we have to send? How many lives would have to be lost? How many years? How much money? And that's the thing is the people who want to stay, who, by the way, benefit, whether it's campaign contributions, whether it's military contractors, the military industrial complex, whether it's people whose power is derived from these wars, they never want to have that conversation about what it would actually take to achieve what are essentially impossible goals to achieve. So when he says, look, the goal was never to unify Afghanistan. No one's ever been able to do that. It gets at that point that what they claim to be the objectives were number one, never the objectives to start with, and number two are basically impossible to achieve. And oh, by the way, if you care so much about women's rights, let's talk about Saudi Arabia. Exactly right. So a few points to respond to that. To the incredibly disingenuous identity argument that they're using, uh. this faux feminist argument of like, what about the women of Afghanistan? Oh my God. Okay. Our allies in Afghanistan are warlords. This is on the record. This is not, you know, something that's hidden or whatever. This has been reported on extensively. Mm -hmm. Our allies in Afghanistan are warlords. A lot of these warlords have child sex slaves. These are people that we've armed. These are people that we've funded. Our own military people have been discharged from the military when they blew the whistle on our allies and said, hey, we're arming and funding a guy with child sex slaves. I saw the person chained to his bed. And now you're going to give me this argument. What about the women? Yeah. You know what it's we can so control? We can control what we do. That's what we can control. I can't control what the fucking Taliban does. I'm not in the Taliban. Yeah. I am an American taxpayer, though. So I know one way to protect the women and girls is to not fund and arm warlords with child sex slaves. So how about that for helping the girls? Now, the other thing is, um, I actually am afraid of what's going to happen under the immense pressure that he's going to feel. Yes. Because we ain't seen nothing yet. They're just getting started. So what I mean by that is, I already made this prediction a number of times. I'll make it again here for everybody. I guarantee you that very soon, before the date we're supposed to pull out of Afghanistan, there's going to be some anonymous intelligence official of course. who whispers in the ear of some reporter at the New York Times or the Washington Post or some other legacy outlet, and they're going to say, we have intelligence where we know that there's going to be a terrible terrorist attack if President Biden withdraws from Afghanistan. So he cannot withdraw. And then the stenographers to power are going to run it uncritically. Everybody in the media is going to parrot it relentlessly. And he's going to feel immense pressure to yeah. say, oh, okay, I'll leave, I'll leave behind a residual force or something yeah. or something. So I'm afraid of the media. I'm also afraid of, like you alluded to, it's not just the Republicans, but it is the Republicans almost across the board, save maybe Rand Paul, who said nothing on this, but eventually I think he'll chime in on the anti-war side. Mm -hmm. But virtually every Republican, and then now even some Democrats are out there saying, no, I, I disagree with him completely. I think that we should stay in Afghanistan. And Jean Shaheen is one example. Yeah. Menendez was another one. Yeah. But Jean Shaheen, get this. So she goes out there. She says, I'm very disappointed in President Biden's decision to set a September deadline to I walk like away from this Afghanistan. This is the thing that you're disappointed in Biden in. Yeah. <laughs> of all and, the things. And so, but guess what? Uh, when you dig into her financial records, three of her top 20 contributors, military industrial complex. So she takes a tremendous <gasps> amount of so money. Surprised. Raytheon, uh, Northrop Grumman and and others. And so, yeah, gee, I wonder why there's going to be this massive backlash. It's yeah. because 
you have a system where these defense contract defense contractors give a tremendous amount of money to the politicians and the politicians get in power and it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And so this is why we have countless tanks sitting in the desert in Nevada. And this is why we have endless wars going on. And believe me, he's going to feel holy hell rain down on him for this decision if he decides to follow through. And I'm afraid that he's going to reverse, but I want him to hold strong. Well, and here's the other thing, the, the behind the scenes reporting of how this actually got done, because the reason that president after president has been elected to get us out of these wars and claims they're going to, and then they don't, in part, is because this pressure that you're talking to, it, talking about is brought to bear on them, and they know there are going to be those leaks to the press, and they're going to be painted as soft on terror, and God forbid anything happens, they're going to be completely blamed for it, and their political, their presidency may well be over, effectively, because of that. And so what's really interesting, um, and this is a piece from Politico about how Biden overrode the Pentagon on Afghanistan because the top leadership at the Pentagon, of course, they all wanted to stay and they always want to stay. Always. They'd be in Vietnam still if they had their way. So behind the scenes, it was Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan who were truly, quote, running the Pentagon, according to two former officials familiar with the discussions. The Pentagon is not making these decisions, one of the people said. So if that's accurate, if they basically just actually brought in, this is true civilian control, and said, no, we're overriding. This is, thank you for your input. This is the direction we're going in. That's also tremendously encouraging. And I would say too, the hopeful take is that Biden has been around Washington long enough and saw the way that this all unfolded in the Obama era, that he's actually learned something from it. And the, the other thing that I'll say is like, look, if you look at Biden's record throughout his political career and who he's been, there are some areas where he has surprised. So on law and order and criminal justice stuff, he is not surprised. He is governed. Terrible. Yeah. It, it's been terrible. I mean, I could go through 10 different stories right now mm -hmm. about him, you know, continuing the border wall, amping up the war on drugs, firing the staffers for marijuana use, mm -hmm. like aggressively continuing to prosecute this like 90s era, tough on crime, law and order bullshit, which is entirely consistent with his whole career. So there's that, which is predictable. On economics, I don't want to give him too much credit, but I think he's been somewhat better than what I expected and a bit of a departure from his past, like just totally um, carrying water for the financial industry that he's been throughout his career. Foreign policy, he's been a little all over the map. And so for me, this one has always been a bit of a wild card. He actually has, in certain ways, a kind of Trumpian approach to foreign policy where it's more based on like relationships and personality and instinct than it is on any sort of coherent policy. So sometimes he's right. And sometimes, as in the case when he really helped build the case for the Iraq war, he's devastatingly wrong. So it's really encouraging in this instance to see the initial comments, how strong they are, how clear they are, and how totally unequivocal they are. So the only reason I have hope, I'm pretty cynical based off everything I've seen in all my time yeah. discussing politics, but the reason I have a little bit of hope on this front is because he actually made arguments. It was, like, I don't know, I can't tell you the last time I heard any politician in Washington, D.C. proactively make a clear anti-war argument 
all you hear usually is the people who are pro-war yelping 24-7, and anybody who's nominally anti-war doesn't say anything. Yeah. Or they just maybe tell you that they're against the war, but they don't give you arguments. He laid out phenomenal arguments here. He laid out arguments that I've made, that you've made, that anti-war lefties have made forever. Yeah. So it takes effort to make those arguments. It takes thought to make those arguments. And the fact that he did leads me to believe, I was honestly 50-50, even with the announcement, oh, we're going to pull out of Afghanistan. I was like, yeah, sure you are. That there's a tweet from 2012 of Obama quoting right. Biden, where Biden's like, we're getting out in 2014, period. Right. Turns out the period wasn't really a period. Turns out the period was a comma because they stayed fucking there, right? Yeah. So I, the reason I have some hope is because it's, it actually looks like there's some effort there, there's some thought behind it, and that this might finally be what we've been waiting for. But yeah. I'll reserve judgment. Instead of 50-50, here's where I'm going to – I'll leave it. Yeah. Instead of 50-50, I'm now 60-40. I think 60% we're going to get out, 40% we're going to stay. I think he does actually want to get out, but I don't know if he's going to be able to withstand the tremendous it's pressure he's going to feel. You're going to see them throw everything And the media the is going to be totally to pro-war. To the political establishment, Democrat and Republican, are going to be totally pro-war. He's going to be the only one out there. And he needs to stand strong and make these arguments even harder. And importantly, some of the most aggressive neocons have been elevated at CNN and MSNBC right, into Crystal, like all these resistance liberal Ugh. heroes. So they have a lot more power and position to make this case and have it land with ostensibly liberal audiences. He better stay strong, Crystal. He yeah. better stay strong. We will be watching. Um, super excited about our guest. So the book that he just wrote that you should definitely pick up is called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. That is not the only book that he's written, though. He wrote The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, The Plot to Attack Iran, The Plot to Control the World, The Plot to Overthrow Venezuela, and relevant to our conversation, No More War. Longtime labor lawyer for um, the United Steelworkers based in Pittsburgh. Um, this guy has really done the work and seen it up close. And without further ado, here is Dan. Dan Kavalik, welcome. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Of course. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you about the book. Uh, what I've read so far, I am in complete agreement with, and I think it's extremely important. But I actually wanted to start with your history working in the labor movement, just to get your reaction to the um, defeat of the union down in Bessemer, Alabama. Yeah, so I, I was a labor lawyer uh, for 26 years. I worked in-house for the United Steelworkers uh, here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This is our headquarters. And, you know, the attempt to organize the South has been a huge challenge for the union movement, you know, really from its inception uh, for obvious reasons. The resistance in the South really overlaps with Jim Crow and, and of course, you know, the history of, of chattel slavery and, and whatnot. It's always been a hard nut to crack. This time it seemed it was going to crack. It seemed like you know, all the stars were aligning uh, for the Amazon workers, um, but ultimately they lost, as you know, and they, they, they voted against the union in pretty large numbers, and that's horribly disappointing. Uh, but what I'll say is it's not shocking, um, and there's a few reasons for this. Again, partly it's, it's, it's the culture in the South. It's also a lot of the disinformation that Amazon was spreading. I think f people feel intimidated also. Look, in the end, wherever you organize, south, north, east, west, it's hard to organize because at this point, 
in, in U.S. history and with our economy, people are just happy to have any job, and they're afraid mm-hmm. to lose it if they mm-hmm. vote the wrong way, which is voting for the union. But I think there's one other factor people have to think about, and that's the pandemic. That prevented union organizers from being able to do the most important organizing work, which are house calls, right? So they were unable uh, largely to, to meet with people um, in their homes, which is thing is something very, very important. And I think that that, that probably uh, was the straw that broke the camel's back from them. Mm. So Crystal uh, did a great segment on this on on Rising where she sort of went through a lot of the things that were underreported or really not discussed at all, like threats from management, implied threats from management. How much do you attribute the failure of the unionization effort to that, to management sort of using underhanded tactics that are borderline illegal or outright illegal? Yeah, well, again, I think that's critical. I think hanging over every union organizing campaign is the threat, either implied or explicit, of job loss, of of, of the company moving, which they do sometimes uh, in response to a union drive, or firing people, or laying off people. Um, And of course, it's hard to counter those threats because the ability to move the plant or fire people really is within the sole you know, power of the company. So they, they hold all the cards. And, and the truth is the National Labor Relations Board allows for companies to go very close to the line in terms of implied threats of job loss. You're not allowed to explicitly fire or threaten to fire people or move the plant if they vote for the union, but you can say things that sound a lot like that. Mm. Yep. Um, and you can say them many times and in many different ways. Uh, oftentimes what companies will do, and again, I've seen this because I've been you know, a lawyer on these organizing drives, they'll say, hey, you know, when that union organized that plant down the road, hey, look what happened. They're gone now, right? Mm. Um, now, to me, that's a clear, you know, what, what, what do they mean by that, right? Um, but you can say that legally. So, so they have a lot of uh, ability to cajole people and uh, pressure people. And again, in the South where jobs, decent jobs are, uh, you know, very scarce, people uh, are very afraid to stick their necks out lest, lest they lose those jobs, you know? Yeah. Well, and Bessemer is a perfect example of that. I mean, this is a town, classic, you know, struggled with deindustrialization, now struggles with high poverty rates. So there aren't a lot of other good jobs there. So if you're able to successfully convince these people, and and by the way, not for nothing, a lot of times employers really do actually go and, and fire organizers or close a plant down altogether, even when those things should be technically illegal. One of the things I covered is some New York Times reporting about a previous Amazon unionization effort in Virginia, where it appeared Amazon actually did break the law in directly threatening these workers' jobs. And the settlement that they came to is they just had to post some flyers around the shop floor about what your rights are. So even when they actually break the law, there's no teeth. Um, Talk a little bit about some of those dynamics, any of that that you want to pick up on. But I'm also curious, you know, 
What's your view of Biden so far and his relationship to unions? He got a lot of credit when he put on a video that was sort of vaguely supportive of the union drive down in Alabama. I think that our expectations for presidents being pro-union, Democrat or Republican, have been set so incredibly low that the fact that he even did that, people were like, oh, my God, (laughs) this is incredible. On the other hand, he says he supports the PRO Act. You don't see a lot of political muscle being put behind it. And what really gets me, and David Sirot over at the Daily Poster did great reporting on this, um, there are executive actions that he could have himself unilaterally issued to put some rules in place that would have put some more pressure on Amazon that he hasn't done. So what do you make of that kind of mixed bag from Biden so far? Yeah, well, I think it's predictable. I think, as you say, uh, well, if you look at the Republican Party, they're just uh, outright hostile towards unions. Of course, um, one of the death knells of the American labor, mo- labor movement was Ronald Reagan's firing of the air traffic controllers when he took office uh, in 1981, and there was no fight back against that. And um, that that was a huge uh, blow to to the labor movement, from which, frankly, they've never recovered. As for the Democrats, frankly, they've largely even stopped paying lip, lip service to unions, mm-hmm. though they at least kind of pretend that they're vaguely on their side. And so this is exactly what Biden's doing. He's following that script. Um, as you say, this PRO Act, which, which would make it easier to organize, uh, which also looks a lot like something called EFCA, which the union movement hoped that Obama was going to pass, uh, particularly during his first two years when, like Biden now, he had a Democratic Congress. That yeah, never happened. Yeah, that never happened, right? Instead, he blew his wad on uh, Obamacare, which is a mixed bag, right? Uh, I think people would admit. So I, I kind of see Biden as playing the same game. He's going to pay some lip service. He's going to do some symbolic things. Um, but we'll see whether he actually does something concrete for the union movement. If he does it, I'd be very pleasantly surprised, but I would be a bit surprised. I will say something about Biden. Um, I happen to know working for the steel workers as long as I did that Biden was one of the officials, even as vice president of the United States, that our president of the steel workers could get on the phone pretty much mm-hmm. at any time. I mean, he was always a guy who was at least happy to talk to workers and leaders of unions. And it, Pittsburgh, by the way, is the largest Labor Day parade in the country. You might be surprised because we're not a huge city, but we are a big labor town. And Joe Biden comes to nearly all of them. He, he yeah. speaks at nearly every single one. Again, a, a symbolic act, but the point is he's probably as good a friend to labor as the labor has had in the White House since, I don't know, probably since Roosevelt. I mean, he, he doesn't approach Roosevelt, but he's probably the the best thing we've had since him. So, I mean, there's reasons to be at least cautiously optimistic about this. Yeah, I mean, that says quite a bit, though, if, if, he's, if he's the hope because, you know, he supported <laughs> NAFTA, which is like – Strike one, you're out. Like, I'm already done with you from a labor perspective. And also, I don't know, yeah. I think LBJ probably eclipses him with the war on poverty. Yeah, anyway, fair, enough, fair enough, no, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I digress from that point. Um, so to what do you attribute the collapse of private sector unionization? And correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it like 6% of the private workforce is unionized? What do you blame that on? In the on? private sector, yeah, yeah. And, and what's mm-hmm. the solution? Is the solution something as simple as the PRO Act and maybe card check? Well, it could be. I mean, what we say... And I think what is true 
is that if you look at least historically, and it's changed a bit, and I'll explain why, historically public unions have done much better uh, organizing and keeping their unions, and why? Because the Wagner Act, right? Is Wagner well, Act? The, the Wagner Act governs private employers. Okay. So we'll talk about that for a second. But because public employers, by and large, don't resist unions as aggressively as private companies. And so if you have something like the PRO Act, which would make it harder for employers to resist unionization, in which you would have card check recognition like some of the provinces in Canada have, uh, and which, by the way, I work for the Steelworkers, which uh, represents workers in Canada. Mm -hmm. And in the provinces that have card check, they do much, much better. So mm. I think that um, – with something like the PRO Act, which would limit the ability of companies to resist unionization in the way they do, I do think the private sector would do much better. Now, the Wagner Act does govern, govern the private sector, does provide some protections, but they're pretty weak mm. uh, for the reasons Crystal was saying. Um, a lot of times companies just uh, negotiate a notice posting, which is what Crystal was saying. But even if they fight it to the end and even if they, they're forced to pay some money because they fired people or shut down a plan or whatnot, usually if you fight that litigation to the end, you're talking about many years of legal battles. By that time, the union campaign is dead, mm. right? Uh, and maybe the plant's gone, and maybe your best organizers are gone, and maybe some of those organizers who were fired get some nice back pay payment. But they're gone. They probably mm -hmm. left town already. The moral so, victory. Yeah, and, and so there is no real justice for people who are trying to organize. And I, I say that reluctantly because I want to encourage people to organize, but – it, it is a risky game. That that's the truth of it, and the Wagner Act provided some protections, but it's it's not enough. Um, so give us a little bit. Uh, I've got two questions here for you. First of all, I'd love to know some of the specifics, like the wildest things that you've seen employers do to try to break a union or keep a union from forming. And then I'd also love to know, like, what made you want to be a labor lawyer? It's not exactly the way to, you know, cash in off your law school degree, go no. study hard, and then you be become a labor lawyer. There's got to be, you must ha have some experience or something in your past that made you have a passion for that. Yeah, well, why don't I start with that first? Um, first of all, I did go to Columbia Law School, you know. Uh, I'm probably the poorest graduate of my class <laughs> of 1993. And yeah, you're right. I, I could have cashed in. Um, but I went to law school. By the time I went to law school, I was a, a leftist. I was a Marxist. OK, that's how I came to it. I came to it through an intellectual way. And I went to law school with the idea to do something progressive. I didn't know what that would be. I thought maybe immigrants rights or human rights or ACLU or something. And I you know, in terms of labor rights, uh, I was interested in that, and I, I got lucky. I, I, I landed a, a clerkship at the Steelworkers my second year, and then I got hired from them, and I stayed with them for 26 years. I had one job my whole adult life. I mean, this is old school. No one has this anymore. Right. And it was right. it was a good life, and I felt that for me, I could go to sleep every night 
and feel like I've done something good for someone and certainly that I didn't hurt anybody, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not sure most of my colleagues from Columbia Law School could say that. Now, in terms of the craziest thing I ever saw, and I, it, I don't have to reach too, too deep into my memory to, to, to talk about it, was an organizing campaign that the steelworkers had at AK Steel in Middletown, Ohio. We had been trying to organize that place for years and, and, and to no avail. And so in the – sometime in the mid-90s, we tried again. We had an election. We lost. But we filed objections to the election, and we had a big trial on the objections to try to get a new election. The most fascinating thing that AK Steel did was they created a soap opera that they broadcast on cable TV for a week, every day for a week. This, this was incredible, incredible production values, right? And it was all about the union organizing campaign. Oh, my God. And so <laughs> it was, it was. I mean, it was incredible. It was funny. So they portrayed the, uh, the union organizer who had this horrible toupee in the soap opera and who had his shirt buttoned down to here you always saw him at the bar he was always <laughs> at the bar right that makes and, you like him and, <laughs> yeah not bad but maybe should be somewhere else. but and oh by the way the soap opera was called decision at middletown right <laughs> and the whole idea behind the soap opera was that the men who worked by and large it was a male workforce the men who worked there were you know these kind of quixotic rubes again this is how the how, how the soap opera portrayed them who didn't understand the meaning of what it would be to be in the union but the women their wives were wise. Uh. So mm. in, in the, you know, so a lot of it was set up. The guy comes home. Hey, look at this. This is the union constitution. We could have this. And, and then the wife goes through it and like, did you see this? The international president could call a strike at any time, whether you want what? it or not, which isn't true. Okay. But so the wives are the voice of, of, of wisdom. But the incredible thing is they would have it like Saturday night live. They've had these fake commercials in it. So, um, the guy would be at the bar and there'd be a TV above the bar, and then they'd narrow into the TV, and here's a commercial. And it showed, you know, one commercial showed the union fat cats at the golf course, you know, uh, being bums. And it was incredible. It was just incredible. But, um, you know, this is what the links. Did it work? Uh, it did work. We lost oh, the game. Oh. It absolutely worked. I mean, hmm. You know, it, it, it was effective, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's actually the perfect segue for us to start talking about the book now, because what you just described is sort of like the intersection of identity politics with status quo protection, which is like one of the dirtiest tricks that we see deployed all the time these days. So you wrote the book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture, which is something that sounds right up my alley. So I want to start pretty broad. Define cancel culture for me define like what do you mean when you say cancel culture yeah so and i do define it in in the book um and i think i use a textbook definition but essentially it's this phenomenon in which people it, it can occur in different ways but what i focus on is where someone says something or posts something on social media that's very common or writes something 
which people f- either find offensive or claim they find it offensive or uh, whatever. And the reaction is that people pile on against this person. Again, many times on social media, but maybe through a petition drive. And, and, and in the extreme cases, they call for this person to be fired from their jobs. Um, which is a, a fairly new new phenomenon, mm-hmm. and so I give examples of this in the book. I, I mean, you can give all of us know of it, examples like this, but the, you know the one uh, case that that just was crazy over the summer. Some professor fell asleep, or she they think she fell asleep. She claims she was resting her eyes, but let's just assume what the worst was. She fell asleep during a racial sensitivity training on Zoom. And students called for her to be fired because she fell asleep. Okay, this is just craziness. But it, it's actually considered this attempt to cancel people in the, in that context, and that's the context I focus on because there's other contexts too. It's considered a form of activism. Like I'm going to get this person fired, and if I do that, score one for the for the cause of social justice. And what I try to argue is. Uh, by and large, uh, those movements to cancel people um, are counterproductive and destructive and are not legitimate forms uh, of activism. Yeah, and you make a very effective case that they're sort of anti-solidarity, right? This idea that as someone on the left or a progressive that you're going to aggressively sick the like corporate HR department on one of their workers – um, creates a climate that is really antithetical to this core value of solidarity. Um, I think one of the things that's really important to lay out, which you do really effectively, is like, why should people care about this? There's the pandemic, there's rise in domestic terror from white supremacists, there's lack of universal health care, there's fights like what's going on down in Alabama, there's you know all kinds of people who have a precarious financial situation because of the economic turmoil that we've been through. Like, we've got all these problems. Why care about cancel culture right now? Yeah, well, the reason to care, I think, is because those types of fights, those types of cultural wars, which is, I think, another way to describe uh, this, detract from the movements along the lines of the things you said. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're focusing your energies on attacking individual professors or individuals, again, because of a misstep or a misstatement, uh, if that's your form of activism, you're not out there advocating for homeless people. You're not out there advocating for uh, increased stimulus during the pandemic. You're not advocating for Medicare for all. And in fact, that that's what I talk a lot about, that, that the movement, for example, for Medicare for all, which had been gaining steam under Bernie Sanders, in which if you recall, at least my, my perspective, when the pandemic was beginning in March of last year and April – a lot of us were saying, oh, my goodness, you know, you got Bernie Sanders talking about Medicare for all. He's popular. And now you have this pandemic. It's inevitable we're going to get Medicare for all. Right. It, it's just going to have to happen. And by May, no one was even talking about it anymore. Mm-hmm. They had moved on to other things. 
uh, despite the fact that polls show about 67% of the American people want Medicare for all. And so my whole point, look, I am not one of these, you know, uh, I'm a left winger. I'm not one of these right wingers who thinks or claims that cancel culture is the greatest plague on American society. I don't. I don't think it's the biggest problem we're facing. But what I do think is that it detracts from the bigger issues and it detracts energy and resources from bigger issues that we could be fighting for and should be fighting for. So um, to what extent do you think this is a real issue? And to what extent is it has it become just like this right-wing trope to gin up support around cultural issues to distract from their regressive agenda on economic issues and foreign policy stuff? Because it reminds me of the Thomas Frank book, What's the Matter with Kansas, where conservatives really leaned into religion and social issues and gay marriage and abortion to basically distract people from the fact that they're totally anti-union, totally anti-higher wages, totally pro-war. Do you see a little bit of that going on with this as well, with Fox News talking about it 24-7? I certainly do. Look, I do think the right wing, which, by the way, is happy to cancel people all the time, right? They have their own cancel culture, which plays out in similar but not exactly the same ways as the left's cancel culture. So they're they're probably even worse, and I I stipulate to that. Um, And at the same time, though, hypocritically, as you say, they've latched on to their claimed concern about cancel culture as a way to – make political gains. So I do think there's a lot of that. And and again, I don't want to um, understate that, nor do I want to jump on that bandwagon because I I do think it's bad. But at the same time, I believe cancel culture is real. And I think people who say it isn't, and there are plenty, particularly on the left who just claim it doesn't even exist, is just completely – that's just not true. We, we know it exists. We see it every day. Almost all of us know someone or certainly know of someone uh, who's been a victim to this. So um, it is a real thing. And again, I think – and again, you mentioned Thomas Frank, and I, I cite him a lot in the book. He, of course, is a very important figure on this, and what he argues and what people like Chris Hedges argue is that these culture wars – um, have again detracted from real struggle and have diverted the people's attention in such a way that it has allowed, frankly, both parties to run over them, to run ripshot over them. Yeah. And so I think what I'm trying to say is look, okay, the right wing is going to do what it's going to do, okay, but the left should not itself engage in these, you know, cultural wars in the way that they do and to the extent they do to the exclusion of all these important issues. And I do think uh, there is that. And I, and I give an example, and again, I'm going to be canceled for, for this example, um, but whatever. Um, you know, last summer you had – we're told some of the biggest demonstrations in U.S. history. Okay, 30 million people, they estimate, were out protesting after the George Floyd murder, which is wonderful. And I mentioned the book. I was at several of those, okay? Um but there was only one slogan that came out of that um, – of those protests, one demand, defund the police. Okay, It was the worst slogan anyone could have come up with. Okay, It was totally self-defeating because even though, again, a majority of the American people want police reform, they want criminal justice reform, 
many people rash, you know, very reasonably interpreted defund the police as don't fund them at all. Okay, right. And those who were advocating for that slogan said that's not what it means. It means this, that, and the other. And of course, if you have to explain your slogan, you've already lost. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. yet people were being canceled because they were critical of the defund the police slogan, even though the polls showed that people who otherwise would support the goals mm. of, again, taking some funding from police, giving it to social programs, taking some weapons away from police, particularly the military weapons that, by the way, Biden is giving them in droves at this point mm. – um, they didn't like to defund the police, and it it, it 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 what it did is it turned a lot of people off. And I think again that is the problem with the left in America is they cling to certain things. Again, this certain slogan on a religious level, uh, it's just like believing in the Holy Trinity. There's no, and there's no way to really explain the Holy Trinity. And again, there was no great way to def- to explain defund the police. Um, but you couldn't question it, and if you did, you were canceled. And ultimately, that was a, a, such a waste of, of an incredible uh, movement, you know, which also reached people in the hinterlands. There were people in Hazard, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Yep. At, you know, on the streets for Black Lives, right? There were people all over the country in little rural towns, towns you never would have thought came out for this. And I believe those efforts and energies were largely wasted on a slogan that was very uh, ill-conceived and and, and frankly destined to lose. And I I, I just see that as part and parcel of, of, of a progressive movement that has given up trying to win people over. It's like... You know, and that is what cancel culture is. It's not about being, bringing people in; it's about pushing them away. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and we, I think that's lose. that's yeah. the thing. And I, and I'm sure part of how you come to this is from your experience with actual working class people. Mm. You know, so it's not just like an amorphous, foreign, imaginary concept of what these people are like, either for good or for ill. It's an actual practical experience on the ground. And what I always wonder is. You were making the point like this was really counterproductive and it didn't move things forward. And we had the largest protest movement in history. And there were some changes made at state and local level. But in terms of federal government, I mean, nothing has changed. Biden just quietly disbanded his police oversight commission. And there you didn't hear a peep about it. Nothing changed at the federal government level. I don't know if some of the people who are the most enthusiastic cancelers, I don't know if they care about actually moving the ball forward in terms of policy goals and building progressive power. It seems to me like Kyle always says, like they want to be part of an edgy subculture. So the fact that the slogan is provocative and is fringe is actually part of the appeal. And then they also want to just signal to the world their own morality Mm -hmm. rather than being actually interested in a project that would be reaching out to some of the steel workers that I'm sure you know who might have voted for Bernie and instead voted for Donald Trump and feel like they get judged and shamed and condescended to by the Democratic Party elite, certainly, but also by the, the left in general. 
No, it's absolutely true. And again, I do talk about that in the book that my perception, particularly as the demonstrations went on, and again, from my own you know, uh, participation in, in, these, in these protests in Pittsburgh was that a lot of this was, as you described, virtue signaling. It was a lot about white people going out and saying, I'm not a bad person. And they would carry signs, you know, white people do the work, you know, meaning, you know, be less racist and all. And as I point out in the book, there were no spectators to these protests because you had a pandemic. Uh, It was hotter than blue blazes, right? So the only people on the streets were the protesters themselves. So uh, what's your sign saying white people doing the work? Who, uh, Who are you broadcasting that to? The other protesters? Like... It was all about, I'm sorry, feeling good about yourself. And as you say, in trying to, in part of, part of the religiosity of it was also feeling good about yourself by saying those people over there are bad people, right? The, and a, a lot of times it was those white working class people are bad people because they don't get it. They don't get what we get. Again, they don't get that defund the police is something that is morally superior to what they think, you know. And so, um, yeah, and I agree. People who focus on canceling other people, again, don't – I don't think really care if, if, if they advance social justice. It is about a way of feeling morally superior uh, to others. And as I also say, and Chris Hedges has said this too, I think cancel culture comes out of not only uh, a lack of desire – to, to create real social justice, but maybe it comes out of a certain despair and and feeling of futility that you can actually make big changes, right? Yeah, that's fair. Th- mm. That, okay, I can't get Medicare for all passed, I might think. I can't stop police killings. Um, so what I'm going to do is just take down this statue over here of Abraham Lincoln, and I'm going to mm. call it a day. That's a big win, <laughs> right, for the movement. Um, so I do think some of this is a politics of despair. It's, Mm. Hey, I can't change the world. And by the way, I certainly can't do it from my computer here, which is where I want to do my activism. If I, if I, that's where I prefer to do it. I prefer to do my online activism and I'm so limited (laughs) by that, you know, at least I can get someone fired. And so that's it. That that's a that's a win. And and I, so again, I think I think there is a certain uh, hopelessness uh, that pervades again what what purports to be the left, and that that informs some of this. Yeah, so, that's well said. So I want to uh, I want to give you what my line has been on this for a while, and just get your reaction to it. So first of all, I would define cancel culture as firing or deplatforming somebody for something they say that's controversial or you know, some sort of official rebuke of free expression, however that manifests. That's how I would define cancel culture. And my line on it has always been that um, I'm actually against it, and the people on the right who claim to be against it in practice actually aren't against it. And to just give two quick examples here, the Lil Nas X situation where he created the Satan shoes and he goes to sell them and you know, Christy Noem, governor of one of the Dakotas comes out. She's made a whole thing about how she's the anti-cancel culture governor instantly calls for canceling, literally canceling Lil Nas X over those shoes. Another example is um, Twitter recently took down a bunch of big Antifa accounts, and I didn't hear a fucking peep from Mm. anybody 
who defines themselves as anti-cancel culture. So it is my line of, hey, I'm a lefty and I'm actually against it and you're not even really against it. Is that the line that you advocate for or is yours different? No, I think I think one, you're right that there is that phenomenon. Um, again, and I think there's also some people on the left who claim to be against cancel culture, but again, cancel other people, right? Um, I, I think one has to be consistent on it, or at least try to be. Um, I don't think that, for example, I go around wanting to cancel people. Again, it's not really what I'm interested in doing. Um, I didn't even want to write this book, to be honest, uh, <laughs> because, again, I, I know I'm going to kind of get sucked into debates that I don't really want to have. But as I mentioned in the book, it, it, I was motivated by a real-life event that happened to a friend of mine who was, I'll just briefly say, a 50-year-old peace activist. I mean an 85-year-old peace activist who, who had been an activist for about 50 years who was canceled over a meme people didn't like even after she apologized for it. And I just – for me, it was just like I can't abide by this. Um, I can't watch someone attacked in this way and do nothing to try to defend that person and try to defend other people like her. So I'd like to think I'm consistent on that. That I, you know, again, I'm not really. I have a social media life, but mostly it's posting news articles or or things. Sometimes I play my guitar, and I I don't spend time like commenting on uh, about people or commenting on other people's stuff and trying to. I just think it's a waste of time, you know. So, again, I, I think I guess to answer your question is, you know, that I advocate, uh, you know, a kind of do unto others as you would do have them do to you, and and if you follow that, you're not going to want to engage in too much of this stuff. I mean, the most hilarious example recently was the the My Pillow CEO guy, <laughs> Mike Lindell. He's like, I'm starting a free speech social media platform it's going to be free speech no cursing and no taking the lord's name in vain and on judeo-christian values it's like and no porn right There's, it's like yeah. okay you're not here's my list of things i don't really want. for free, free speech, speech <laughs> you just want to be the one to define the terms yes. of that mm -hmm. speech. Right. so you don't like who has control right now in terms of cultural power that's your real objection you're happy to push people out of the public square who you don't happen to agree with or who you find to be offensive. I thought that was really telling. But I also have to say, and I'm, I'm curious your perspective on this, like, I think it's somewhat effective what the right is doing, which is another reason to oppose this instinct on the left is what they say to, you know, the guys who are steel workers potentially is these people look down at you, they judge you. If you don't use, every, you know, the perfect language all the time and have the right views on every issue, they don't want anything to do with you. They think you're racist. They think you're ignorant. They think, like Hillary Clinton said, you're a deplorable. And you know what? That's actually really potent and has some basis in reality, too. Yeah, I think it's true. I think it is true that liberals see the world that way. And and one of the great examples I think uh, to me is is Saturday Night Live. You know, I, I hmm. when I see those clips of Alec Baldwin as Donald Trump, I see him more than he's making fun of Donald Trump. He's making fun of all those working class people who support Trump, and they see it that way too. Hmm. I think that 
if you are you know a, a working class person in this country you have to feel looked down upon, upon by much of the mainstream media uh, and by liberals i mean i just think it's a fact because i think liberals do look down on them and and i think this has destroyed you know old uh, alliances between the working class and different liberal mo- movements right um, and again, even after last summer, when these working class people from Hazard, Kentucky or other places in Kentucky or West Virginia were out protesting for Black Lives Matter, they still ultimately fe- felt dissed by liberals, right? So, so what's it all about? You know, no, I do, again, to give credit where credit's due, and I, I do want to do that. I don't, you know, there was a very positive thing with this. Um, Union organizing campaign at Amazon in in Alabama, and that was that the Black Lives Matter movement there did support the campaign actively. Yep. And they saw their interest as aligned. That's what I want to see. I want to see that more. But that takes people being open to others who, again, they may instinctively think are somehow backwards or or, or whatever. Um, and I just want to quickly mention, if I can, you know, something else to, to address something else you mentioned. Um, this idea of canceling working class people because they don't get the latest woke jargon or whatever. Um, as I mentioned in the book, the Trump administration, uh, the, the Trump National Labor Relations Board actually uh, drew from that sentiment, this idea that you can't trust working people's ideas on these things. Uh, And they overturned decades of board law, which had hitherto allowed uh, workers involved in workers' activities like organizing, collective bargaining, striking, to have some leeway in terms of free speech, even offensive speech. The uh, Trump board, in a case called General Motors, upheld the discipline of an employee who happened, by the way, to be black. Because amongst other things, during collective bargaining, uh, in order to make a point about how draconian the company was, he pretended to be a slave and he used the term yes master. And the company said, oh, I find that offensive. That's racist. Even though this is a black worker saying Mm -hmm. this. And the board upheld his discipline and they changed board law, making it easier to discipline and fire someone like that for saying those sorts of things. So not only is this like a mood or, or uh, you know, some uh, underground movement, this has been codified now and not by liberals. In fact, the conservatives did it um, as an opportunistic thing. And by the way, I don't think Biden will overturn that. I think Biden Biden's supporters will probably largely – be okay with that decision. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think it's a mistake. Yeah. yeah um, I think you're highlighting something that was the old school ACLU argument for a long time, which is that crackdowns on freedom of speech as a general rule always target outsiders. And, you know, if you're a lefty, you're almost by definition an outsider because you question power centers and you question, you know, uh, moneyed interests. So it always is going to come back around, and that's something that uh, many people sort of miss out on. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a difficult question here. So you are the author of The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture, but give me an example of somebody being fired or deplatformed 
that you think might be legitimate or at least a borderline case? Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you an easy case. And again, maybe this goes a bit beyond um, you know, the content of the book. But th- let's start with the easiest case, Harvey Weinstein. Um, right. Okay. He clearly assaulted women, raped women, and he was not only deplatformed, but he also eventually went to jail. Okay, fine. Cancel the guy. I'm glad. You know, uh, he engaged in criminal activity and there was good evidence to think that he did so. And of course, he ultimately was was convicted of that. Um, so that's an easy one. Um, you know. I and again, this may be you know you might take me on for this one, but I was not upset when Roseanne lost her show because of I think a pretty racist thing she tweeted. Um, and and the reason I you know the the difference I have a bit is because while a lot of people in the cancel cultural or universe often say that intention doesn't matter i think intention does matter i think roseanne had become a pretty mean-spirited person and said a very mean-spirited racist thing in a very hostile way for a hostile purpose and uh was abc or whatever decided that that went too far and apparently her co-stars agreed um I, I, I kind of was okay with that. And again, maybe maybe I can't justify that based on on other things I say. I think I can. Um, what about Alex think, Jones? Do you think Alex Jones should have been deplatformed? Uh, remind me. I know he did so many crazy things, like but why was, was he de- So the, the main – I think. Yeah, main, that was cra- – yeah, again, that was crazy. I mean – that was, again, just so cruel what he did. This was not a misstatement. This guy claimed that you know a- actual children who were killed weren't really killed, right? He claimed it was all a setup to, to, yeah. to, well, so, to undermine the gun lobby. So here, let me give you the specifics of what happened with the Jones case. They argued that um, with him questioning Sandy Hook, he, of course, argued it's a conspiracy because he argues everything is a conspiracy, that right. there were some people in his audience – who used that as a green light to sort of harass the parents of the children who were killed in it. Now, when I dug deeper on that, it's actually, it's not true that he ever gave out names or gave out addresses or really doxed them or anything like that. So it's really the fact that his crazy audience reacted in such a way where they interpreted his words and then they took action. So, and this one probably people disagree with me on, but I always said, listen, if somebody is directly advocating violence. That's against the law. I mean, we have First Amendment protections and freedom of speech in this country, but that, even that's against the law because it's a direct threat of violence. You're not allowed to do that. So I understand if people want to you know, have some sort of consequences if somebody does that. I actually don't think Alex Jones did that, but even if he did, my argument would be why not pull down just those specific videos that are of mm-hmm. concern instead of effectively giving the guy the internet death penalty? Because as terrible as he is, that was a precedent that was set that's now used against all sorts of people. I mean, the Chapo Trap House Reddit was banned, and, you know, the genesis of all this stuff was banning Alex Jones. Yeah, well, you convinced me on that one, Kyle. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think— I'm, I'm no, a very convincing look, guy. Yeah, well, look, and this is part of my argument. Look, we just need to be able to talk about these things. Like, right. And question things. I, yeah. I don't claim to have all the answers, and that's not the point of my book. The point is we at least should be able to ask the questions. 
And sometimes mm. by asking those questions, like you asked of me, and being able to freely respond, and, and you freely respond to me, sometimes we come to an agreement. Isn't that incredible how that might work? Um, and But we, I think what we get to, though, is this question of – and I like this expression, the Overton window, right? Mm. I think all of us have some idea of a line that someone could cross. That's called the Overton window. Um, that might subject them to legitimate – I don't want to say cancellation, but repercussions, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but the, for you know where that Overton window is, where that line is, that is a very difficult um, thing to debate you know, sometimes. Um, but I certainly think that uh, when it comes to your average ordinary person, I think they should be given the benefit of the doubt. Okay, so we've so far talked about you know uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein and 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 Alex Jones, and I mentioned Roseanne. You know, those are people who are public figures who put their necks out in support of whatever they do, and they have to, frankly, bear some of the re- you know bear the risks of that. But I think some adjunct professor who's making three grand per course, who again says something that people deem offensive, even though that person didn't mean to be offensive, I think one should be very reluctant to try to take their livelihood uh, away from them. And I I do see those cases as very different. And I think the Overton window may move depending on how big of a public figure you are. I I actually agree with that, that there could be a little bit of a different standard, depending on whether you're punching up or punching down, right? And so much of what we see, I remember the Washington Post did this whole long takedown of this woman who several years ago wore a Halloween costume that people thought was offensive. I mean, things like that, it feels gratuitous. It feels like there's, we have no, we have no societal path towards redemption, like right. with your with your friend that, you know, who shared something that people found offensive and apologized. But it didn't matter whether that apology was in good faith. The goal wasn't let me educate this person and bring them along. It right. was let me get rid of this person altogether here. I guess the the pushback that I hear a lot, which I think has some merit, is what people are really upset about, the people who are really mad about cancel culture, whether they're on the right or whether they're people like, you know, maybe Glenn Greenwald or like yourself, the thing that they're really mad about is they're upset about who gets to draw those lines now. Because as you were just saying, look, some of these are tricky cases, right? Alex Jones might be a tricky case. Roseanne may be a tricky case. Some of them are less tricky in my view. But there's, there's still going to be a line drawn somewhere. And the argument goes, what people are really upset about is that now people who were previously marginalized have a say in where those lines get drawn. What's your response to that one? Well, you know, and I understand that, that some people see cancel culture as the uh, way for the oppressed to have a say and that this is empowering for people. Um, Again, there may be cases where that, that, that is so, I suppose. But first of all, I think most of the people on the internet um, 
who have you know daily access to computers and Wi-Fi and whatnot certainly aren't the most oppressed people by and, and, and large. Um, certainly students at these elite institutions who we know have tried to get and successfully gotten in some cases professors fired are not oppressed people. Um, I, I don't see that it's it's the oppressed, the most certainly not the most oppressed in society uh, that are doing this. And again, to the extent that those people are kicking down, and I think you know, I think we're getting to maybe the crux to things. That is the most upsetting, and that is very many times the case where people are calling for others to be fired, who frankly have no power at all. Mm-hmm. Um, is one thing, as I mentioned in the book, you have two parallel things happening, again, at the university. And a lot of this um, has begun in the university and kind of bled out into the rest of society. <clears throat> the two things happening are, again, this cancel culture where now students think it's it's activism uh, to, to get people deplatformed defla- defla- uh, and fired and whatnot. And they're happening on a parallel track is the adjunctification of the academy where you used to have professors who had tenure and got paid well and got benefits. Most uh, professors now uh, are adjunct professors who have no benefits, have no tenure, who get paid a few thousand dollars per course, meaning you know poverty wages per, for the year. Um, the idea of going after someone like that, who's barely eking out a living, that's not the oppressed taking on the oppressor. In fact, it's students or you know fairly well-placed people uniting with the administration that's making hundreds of thousands of dollars, by the way, to go after this lowly instructor many times because they – Instructor says something that, that really isn't offensive. It's just you know questioning the prevailing orthodoxy. Um, that's not progressive. That isn't the oppressed, um, you know, making their voices heard. Not in my view. Again, maybe you could point me to a case where that's happened. Maybe the Harvey Weinstein case was an example of that. You know, where you had some of these actresses who, frankly, by by the time they were making. The biggest, you know, push to go after him. They, they, their careers were pretty much in the past, and so they were pretty oppressed people. And um, they were able to get masses of people to do the Me Too movement. I think there was some aspect of that which was certainly progressive, certainly, and that was a form of cancel culture, you know. But again, uh, a lot of this is not that. Um, and I think ultimately, I think one of the things that, as we discuss this. You know, I think a lot of times the devil's in the detail, you know, and and, uh, but I would say ultimately that one should really be reluctant and one should really think twice uh, before going down a road where you're going to take someone's livelihood away. And that and by the way, I think if you have the ability to do that, it's many times hard to argue you're that oppressed by that person if you have the ability to get them fired. Right. Um, so anyway, so, um, let, let's talk about some, some concrete solutions. I want to give you, uh, my thoughts on this and get your reaction to it. So when it comes to cancel culture, again, I generally think of it as like somebody getting 
fired or deplatformed for saying something controversial or having some sort of official rebuke over free expression. Like for just another example would be the anti-BDS laws that popped up in a lot of states where, you know, you can't get any government funding if you happen to agree with boycotting Israel. Um, so my solution would be to basically expand the Bill of Rights, expand the First Amendment to protect people on big social media platforms and basically define them as public utilities. And then I'll go even a step further than that. I think there should be some sort of free speech protections for employees from their employers. So just like the case you laid out before with a black, was, was it a GM worker who said like, yeah. yes, Massa, and then they got fired because they said, oh my they God, that's racist. Yeah. Even though, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So do you agree with that, that we should expand First Amendment protections to include the workplace, but also expand First Amendment protections to basically the online sphere, to social media platforms? Well, I think we should do something like this. I actually like your idea of making the social media platforms public utilities. I mean, naming them as such, uh, because that's what they are. Right. You know, the, 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 the Facebook and Twitter are more important than than, you know, for example, most radio stations, which are yep. governed by the Federal Communications Commission, right? Um, so I think that there has to be um, – and therefore the First Amendment would apply, as you say, if, if you did treat them that way. And yes, I certainly think in the workforce – well, I mean I think a, two, a, two things should be done. I think in the workforce – all employees should be given just cause for discharge, which makes it much harder to discharge people. Right now, most employees are employees at will. You can be fired for no reason or any reason at yep. all, as long as it's not discriminatory based on race, gender, religion. Um, I think – I really do think that, that, as you say, employees should have a right to free speech and that they shouldn't be fired for things they say – um, that, again, would otherwise be governed by the First Amendment. I, I totally agree with that. I think that would change things quite a bit. A lot of your work has focused in Appalachia, and I'm sure over the time period when you were working in that region, you've seen a tremendous political shift. I'd just be curious for your reflection on what you see as the reason for that shift from, you know, voting for Democrats to definitely not voting for Democrats. I was just looking at some data that um, the part of Ohio that I actually used to live in, East Liverpool, which is technically Appalachia and suffered deindustrialization, massive opioid crisis, all of those sorts of things, is the district in the country that has moved the fastest to the right over the past couple of years. Um, what are your reflections on, on what you've seen working in West Virginia, working in Kentucky, working in um, the Appalachian part of Virginia? And do you think that this uh, instinct or almost like religion on the left is part of the story of why so many people, so many union workers decided to move to the right and vote for Donald Trump and other Republicans? Well, what I think has happened is that that those workers, by and large, feel abandoned by the Democratic Party and by liberals, which have – and in part it is because they, they do view themselves as, as seen by those liberals as deplorables, again, in the words that Hillary Clinton used so famously and so terribly, right? But I think the main reason they have – Abandon the Democratic Party, or I think it's more accurate to say the Democratic Party has abandoned them. 
right? West Virginia is a good example. West Virginia was a solid blue state for a long, long time. And let's remember why West Virginia is West Virginia, because hmm. it didn't want to be a slave state, right? They, there's a lot of progressive aspects to this state. And of course, it's one of the most vilified states in the union, right? Um, but it went red because the Democratic Party has barely made any pretense anymore that they represent those people. Mm. And, you know, I mentioned in the book, you know, there was this UN study um, in 2018 on human rights and poverty in the United States. And it pointed out that there's huge swaths of West Virginia that don't have sewage or running water. I mean, West Virginia has been abandoned by America and certainly by the Democratic Party. And they, they feel that deeply. Uh, notwithstanding that fact, West Virginia still has uh, a long history and a long current uh, history of, of labor struggle. You know, there were some of those big teacher strikes there, yeah. wildcat strikes a couple of years ago. Of course, when there were coal mines there, there were famous coal strikes, a lot of uh, labor militancy there. Um, and again, I talk about in the book, the guys I knew from West Virginia from the steel workers wanted Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic nominee and would have voted for him. And when, it, when the union endorsed Clinton and then Clinton won the nomination, they felt very betrayed. And because of NAFTA that you mentioned, because of PNTR, which was the trade agreement with China, because of the Trans-Pacific uh, trans Trade Agreement that Obama agreed to. And they were like, hey, Union, you've been telling us for years these are bad things. You've endorsed every president that, that have given us those things. We wanted Bernie, who we think would oppose those and also give us health care. Um, instead, we got Clinton. Who, who, who? She and her husband were the king and queen of of free trade, which which mm -hmm. sent jobs overseas. Um, and then, so a lot did go for Trump. Not everyone, but a lot did, because at least Trump spoke to their concerns. He said that he would not um, move forward with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which he didn't. He did live up to, to be, that. To be fair, he slipped some of the provisions from the TPP into the new NAFTA. Okay, fair enough. Classic Trump but move he, of like, right, I'm going to do but, this thing. All right, never mind. Let me switch. But this was going to uh, also involve countries in Asia and whatnot. That did not go forward. Again, and I'm not a Trumper, um, and a lot of what he said was bluster and, and, and was not true. But he at least said it. And remember, there was, and I mentioned in the book, there was that carrier air conditioning plant yeah. in Indianapolis. Trump said, I'll keep that company open because it was on the chopping block to be closed and have the work moved to Mexico. That was a steel worker plant. Mm -hmm. And again, while Trump did not save all those jobs, he did save some of them. The first thing he did, and I remember this vividly, when he was elected was to go with Mike Pence, who you remember was the governor at the time of Indiana, to go to Indianapolis and negotiate with the company to at least save a few hundred jobs. That was a very important political act, and that was something that Democrats haven't done anything like that for years, right? So all I'm saying is, you know, there are reasons that the working class has moved to Trump and Trumpism um, that have at least a rational basis and are not grounded in racism and, and that sort of thing that really have a lot to do 
more with, frankly, what I see as a realignment of the Democratic and Republican parties. You know, the Republican Party is now probably going to be the party of a middle American, rural America. Uh, the Democratic Party's decided they don't need those people anymore, and that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I I have to say I don't I don't quite agree with that because I feel like. No, both parties have completely abandoned the working class with little crumbs here and there. The, the like, populist hope of the right, Josh Hawley, wouldn't even support a $15 minimum wage. So populist my ass cheeks. He's nothing. But even to the, to the Trump point, I think that it, it's, a, it's about the rhetoric and the show versus the reality. I 100% agree with you that Trump put on that show in 2016, that show of like, no, no, I'm the guy who's going to look out for the working people in the weeks leading up to the election, he was hammering away in the Rust Belt. Every speech, he was going after Hillary for NAFTA and outsourcing the jobs and look at these dilapidated factory towns. But even the carrier example, what ended up happening is that a year later, a year and a half later, they did ship all those jobs overseas. But it was actually a double whammy of negative stuff because they also, Trump funneled them a bunch of taxpayer money, so they did this big subsidy to keep the jobs there, and then they shipped the jobs overseas anyway. So people got hosed twice. The taxpayers got hosed because they shipped the jobs overseas anyways, even though we paid them, and the workers got hosed. And they went and interviewed those workers, and they're like, yeah, I feel, I feel like I was totally had by Trump on this. So my, the final question I want to ask you, then I'll turn it over uh, to Crystal. Is this a fair summary of your book that cancel culture effectively gets in the way of worker solidarity. And in order to organize, you're going to have to get along with people who you may not agree with on social issues to get anywhere. Yes. And I think that that sentiment is summed up by another big movement from 2012, and that's the Occupy movement. Their slogan was the 99% versus the 1%. The 99% of us who owns so little while the 1% owns, what, half of the country's wealth. And cancel culture says something different. The, the sentiment behind cancel culture is we don't even like most of the 99%, right? Mm-hmm. right? Because we think they're all backwards, right? So yeah. we 40%, we're going to go it alone, baby. Okay, we're going <laughs> to, and guess what? It ain't going to work. Uh, because the 1% is very powerful. I think Occupy had a right. The only way we win is if we can we can really increase the tent. We're not going to get all 99% of the people in that tent, but we should try to get most of them in the tent so that we can unite and, and, and create real political change. And if you look at the polls, and Chomsky's talked about this for, year, for years, the polls show the American people are pretty good on almost every issue. Yep. They want Medicare for all. They want yep. police reform. They want criminal justice reform. They want to end these endless wars. Um, okay, that, that's a good place to start. Can mm-hmm. we start there in yeah. building a movement? That's the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, to bring this back kind of full circle to, to Amazon and a different way of, of thinking about these issues and actually building solidarity and building a movement moving forward, your union, the Steelworkers, have a proud history. I'm sure it's not been perfect all the time, but of melding economic justice and racial justice. Talk about that as sort of the way to move forward. Yeah, and I, I point that out in the book, and I was surprised— to learn this when I was hired by the union because I didn't know all this history. 
you know, first of all, the CIO itself, which the Steelworkers was one of the founding me uh, members of the CIO movement in the 30s. Uh, the CIO movement itself was a move away from these racist craft unions. The whole idea was we're going to organize people in uh, industrial plants uh, not based on skill and not based on race but just because they all work there. This was a radical idea and this was a progressive idea. But even beyond that, I mentioned you know the steelworkers gave money. Um, um, to, to various civil rights groups during the civil rights movement, supported the civil rights movement, supported people who went to jail during the civil rights movement, and the steelworkers uh, created and defended it at the Supreme Court an affirmative action program at various of its uh, companies to try to advance the rights of African-American wor uh, workers, and that's the famous case of uh, Weber versus U.S. Steel that my boss at that time had actually been involved in. And so I think those types of things point the way forward. Um, you know, I guess it's back to the future, right? <laughs> the, the past shows us a path forward to movements of workers and African-Americans um, and other oppressed peoples together to try to, to 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 create a better country and a better world, and I think I think we can learn from that. Yeah, and the union movement, as I said, you know, certainly hasn't been perfect, and some areas have no. been better than others. But I do firmly believe that part of why unions have been so vilified and come under such attack from especially Republicans, plenty of Democrats too, though, but everyone who has power is because they're one of the few spaces in America where you really build solidarity, solidarity and trust between workers who are of all races, all kinds of different backgrounds. That's the most fertile ground for actually building that solidarity. Yeah, and I saw that at the union. Uh, again, well, you know, nobody's perfect. What we always saw and commented on was that, you know, unionized workers are by and large much less racist and sexist than other workers. That that the solidarity built in a union plant, again, doesn't necessarily get rid of all that stuff, but it at least moves people forward beyond that. And and I think that's that's hopeful. It gives gives me hope. Indeed. Um, the book is Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan, thank you. It's so great to have you. Really that, uh, fantastic conversation today. Thank you. I had a great time. Big honor for me. Be well. That is Dan Kavalik, who, uh, I, listen, I think he's really interesting. When I heard the title of his book, I was a little mad I didn't come up with it first. <laughs> because it sounds like something I would write. You know, that sounds like just right in my wheelhouse. Um I will say that my my feelings on this topic have evolved a little bit over time. Um, I now view the issue as also just the total dodge slash only thing the right can talk about now. Of course. Yeah, because like Biden's not, uh, don't get it twisted here. I'm not giving Biden too much credit, but even with him doing the bare minimum, that bare minimum is so much better than anything the Republicans are proposing yeah. that they have no substantive response to, like, you know, the $1,400 checks. So there, there's no response to it. So what do they do? Just change the topic and talk about Dr. Seuss. Right. And that's how I view cancel culture now is, like, the ultimate out for Republicans to try to get to issues where they feel like they're safe and they're on winning ground. Right. Well, and, I mean, I think they also have found 
The term cancel culture, first of all, I despise the Me term too. It's so altogether. I, I really would like to come up with a new term. I, I should know. have asked Dan if he had ideas about that because it's just so overused and so obnoxious. And I really associate it with exactly what you're talking mm -hmm. about. People who use it disingenuously, who don't really stand for or believe anything. They, they, they would never stand up, for example, for someone who was fighting for human rights in Palestine. Yep. When those people get canceled, they, they're the front of the line to be like, you should cancel that person, right? right? Mm -hmm. So so many of the people who are claimed to be passionate advocates on cancel culture are just disingenuous pieces of shit, frankly. So that's why I totally despise the term. But I do think this sense that liberals and the Democratic Party are sort of sneering and judging most of the country, I actually think that's incredibly politically powerful. I think it is the thing that have kept Republicans not only in the ball game, but has basically led to them being able to, you know, take majorities. I mean, there's also the fact that the electoral landscape is insanely biased in their favor. So they get to benefit from that as well. But it may be the single biggest reason the contempt that comes from coastal liberals and Democratic elites is the single biggest thing that the Republican Party has going for them, which is why I would say my feelings on this issue have evolved as well in that I would have pretty recently been like, I don't even really care. Like, this is sort of silly. I'm not all that interested in it. But Dan really makes the case for how this is a big stumbling block for all the other things that we care so much about. Because if you're focused on the personal, like the individual, let's judge every individual in the country's morality and let's focus on canceling them, then you're not focused on those bigger issues of structural um, inequities and power structures as well. It's a complete distraction, but it's not a, just a distraction from the right. It's also a distraction that many liberals sort of buy into and play along with. Yeah. So let me make a distinction here because I could already anticipate what some of the responses would be to that. People yeah. who would argue with us, they would say, you can't make the argument like, oh, give in to the right in order to defeat the right. Like, why don't you take the framing of the right in order to defeat them? Mm. They would say as a matter of principle, like, you should just disagree with the right. But I do want to make a distinction because the fact of the matter is, yes, like that uh, article that What's-His-Face wrote over, was it at the New York Times? Brett Stevens, he wrote this article like, Biden should build the wall before the next Trump does. Mm. And mm -hmm. some actually, people... And actually, he is, but anyway. Well, he's filling in the holes of the part mm -hmm. that's already built. He's not completing it. He's mm -hmm. filling in the... But anyway, I digress. I don't want to get into <laughs> the weeds of the wall. Yeah. But point is... I, don't, I think this is categorically different from that argument, and it's categorically different from, like, hey, do another war or the next Republican will. Like, I think that criticism, if somebody were to make that argument, the critics are correct, and the people making that argument is wrong. But for this, no, I, I think as a matter of principle, at face value, if you accept the rhetoric of, like, hey, don't fire people because they said something douchey. Like, I agree with that. Right. So it's not like I'm giving in to the right. I would actually argue the real left-wing position is the traditional left-wing position, the old-school ACLU position, of like, yeah, you should really be an absolutist on, on this front. The only time that there should really be any repercussions and consequences is if it is like a direct threat of violence or somebody's, like, doxxed. Yeah. Outside of that, you kind of have to stand for everybody on principle, even to express the most odious opinions. Because what people used to understand, which they struggle with today, is that... The second you go after somebody for the content of it or, or the politics of what they're saying, it's inevitably going to come right back around and, and 
come for you and the people that you're closest with and the because pe- everybody thinks their own opinions are obvious. Mm. But no, there's a million people who listen to you and think that, you know, you're e- e- extreme. They, you know, some Ted Cruz fan listens to me and you and they might be like, well, these guys shouldn't be allowed to say the things that they're saying. Yeah. You know, it's it's anybody who really questions power will inevitably be on the receiving end of the censorship and the deplatforming. So be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you cheer for, because it's not going to work out. And just to to bolster your point there as well on, you know, the biggest hypocrites in the world on this, Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro come to mind on the exact point. Like, they're oh, they're so anti-cancel culture. There's been a thousand stories about critics of Israel, people who support BDS, who've lost jobs, who can't get hurricane relief because they agree with BDS. And these guys said Dickie McGizak's about that. They didn't say anything. In fact, they support the cancellation because they care deeply about Israel. There are states that are passing laws to basically try to ban protests. And there's a lot of them. Yeah, you're guys right. are have nothing to say, nothing ab- to say about any of that. So, yeah, look, the principle is the thing. And whether on balance right at this moment, it falls more harshly on the right or more harshly on the left. I would argue still it falls more even at this moment. It's more people on the left who get canceled yeah. for their views that challenge power and are anti-establishment. But even if that wasn't the case, like. The principle of the thing is the thing. And Mm -hmm. so if someone is claiming to be against cancel culture, but you don't see them defending someone who they may personally not only disagree with, but actively find offensive, then they're full of shit, bottom line. So I have to say, I hate to do this without him here, but I wanted to respond in the moment and didn't get to because I brought up the Alex Jones example. But I actually disagree with him on the Roseanne thing. Mm. I wouldn't have fired her. I wouldn't have fired her. I don't remember the details enough she, to I like, think she make a called... cogent argument about it. But I guess I do feel... I can tell you if his, you want to know. His, not really. I don't care that much. Okay. But... <laughs> Just about um, to get into it. Yeah, I, I do feel like his point that people who have positions of power, influence, money, that it's okay to hold them to a little bit of a higher standard because you have this platform and a certain level of responsibility that comes with that. I actually do agree with that. No. See, I'm more extreme than you are on this. I don't. So you think the same whether you're the most powerful person in the world versus like, you know, a worker on the shop floor at GM that the same standard should apply? I just I don't think so. So but okay, so like if somebody who has a lot of power says something, what what should be the consequences? I mean, it obviously depends on the details, right? All of okay, it depends on the details. Give, then give me an example of what you're talking about. I do think there's a different. Well, I mean, he gave the obvious example of Harvey Weinstein, which I think everybody. But Harvey would Weinstein agree with. is a fucking criminal and a rapist. Right. That's not the same thing as canceling somebody. Like, I actually, He's a rapist. Lock him up. <laughs> well, how about this example? Um, when Trump not was banned from Twitter, mm-hmm. but when he was had his account paused for a few days for inciting insurrection, yeah, I was kind of okay with that. So okay, but then there's an argument to be made there that he was directly threatening violence. And if you can sufficiently make that argument, mm-hmm. then I would agree with it. Yeah. You know, I think that maybe the lines are a little blurrier than you're, you know, alluding to here. I think that maybe it was a little bit more of a so-so case. Yeah. Like maybe I would agree no, with you. I, maybe I wouldn't. I'd have right. to see the specifics of your argument. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as uh, like I always say, there's very few exceptions to freedom of speech. There's very few exceptions to the First Amendment. This is one of them. Direct threats of violence is one of them. I would have agreed on the tweet where he, I don't know if you remember this, on North Korea, there was one day he went on Twitter. I remember yeah. waking up to this and nearly had a fucking heart attack. Right. Literally was like, 
Better watch what you say or I'll bomb you. Or so, it was some shit like that. Here's the other thing I'd ask you, and I'm actually not sure what I think about this one. Is there a difference between people who were elect democratically elected mm -hmm. and people who weren't? So do you have a more lenient standard like for the president of the United States? Because it's like, all right, he's outrageous and he sort of threatened violence, you know, borderline at least. But people elected this guy and he's the president and the leader of the free world and all that crap. Like there's news value in what he's saying. There's practical value in terms of like what's going on in the country and in terms of what he's saying. Does that lead to a different standard as well? So what you're saying is because the president is by definition newsworthy, does that lead to him having a separate and standard democratically where, you, where you have to see where there's like, you know, society voted for this guy and he's in power whether we like it or not? Yeah. So. The answer to that is no matter what, the news agencies should cover what he says because he's the president. So that's their obligation. That's their duty. They mm -hmm. have to do that. Um, in terms of how I would react if I'm, you know, Twitter or if I'm a major platform and he does a direct threat of violence. No, I think that's a clear violation of the First Amendment. You're not allowed to do that. If you can prove your case in a court of law, the person would be found guilty for directly threatening violence. Mm -hmm. Another exception, by the way, to free speech, I think, is doxing. Any sort of doxing or yeah. targeted, you know, overt, over-the-top harassment and abuse. Now, I would be very rigid in how I define it and what I, I consider that. But if you can make the case that what he did is that, no, he's not getting any special fucking treatment because he's the president. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting about Dan's perspective is that it comes from his interactions with real human beings, working yeah. class human beings. Can I just make one more point? I'm sorry sure. to interrupt. I just want to make one more point because I'm, I'm going to lose this if I don't say it now. And also, I want to be clear that I'm I'm really almost never an advocate of what I'd call the Internet death penalty, mm. which is what they did to Alex Jones, where they're like, we're just going to kick you off all or, the platforms in a Parler. coordinated way right now. Parler was the one that really was total Internet death penalty. Like, we're going to not only are we going to, like, take you off of the app store, but we're going to pull your... Oh, you're saying they did it to a whole platform. The whole yeah, platform, yeah. 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 No, you're and, right. And the, we're going to pull, like, your ability even to operate. Well, that's what they... As much yeah. as, uh, you know, I despise Alex Jones's politics, that's what they fucking did to him. They said, we're going to take you off the internet in every single way we possibly can and coordinate with as many different outlets as we possibly can and give you the internet death penalty, where my point is... Even if you can sufficiently prove that what he did was like doxing or harassment of the yeah. the Sandy Hook families, then you pull down those specific videos, those specific ones. Yeah. And that's after you prove it and there's a process and whatnot. You know what I mean? Yeah. But this stuff, you know, when I make this case, a lot of people, they just want to mind off and I disagree. You well, know? and I understand that because... God, as a parent, uh, I can't imagine. He's a piece of shit. He's yeah, a colossal and, and, piece of shit. And not only, you know, what they, like, God, what they went through on that day and losing their child, but then you've got this asshole, like, pretending like it was fake and then his crazy-ass followers, like, compounding your pain. So that whole series of events was horrific. But, you know, I think you're right, even as absolutely and so i think i understand why people have a visceral me reaction too i have the same fucking visceral that. reaction yes yes <laughs> but when you actually look at his statements if he isn't directly sort of inciting that then i guess i have to agree with you and also hold those fuckers accountable who actually did the harassment and the abuse and Ugh. went to the those fuckers Horrible. should be in jail if you're actually harassing the parents of the kids who died in sandy hook Horrible. lock those assholes up Horrible. and i don't i don't need to get into their mind to see how they made they connected the dots and how they linked it to alex jones and how they felt inspired by alex jones i don't give a fuck about what they're thinking what they're doing is wrong and they need justice over that yeah
I guess what I was going to say is, you know, I think there's a big difference from someone like Dan who devoted his life to actually helping workers, mm. to actually building solidarity, to actually trying to push a movement forward. And someone who is on Twitter doesn't really actually care about progress mm -hmm. or, you know, in the most uh, diplomatic or most sort of like... The, the friendliest interpretation is that they feel so much despair and so helpless to actually accomplish political ends that this is the only type of activism they can engage in where there's an actual result with the actual result being like, you know, someone gets fired or someone gets banned from Twitter or someone even just like has a shitty day and feels bad about themselves is sometimes the end in and of itself. But I think there's a profound difference between people who actually are looking to, okay, how do we move this forward? How do we build a coalition so that we can actually accomplish the goals that we all want? And people who are just looking at like, how do I make myself look good? How do I sort of score points? How do I gain clout? And to me, that's the big dividing line on all of this because Dan makes the case this is counterproductive in terms of the goals that we ultimately care about. And I just don't think that you can really deny that case. It's incredibly clear that it has created this impression justifiably for much of the country that they're sort of like held in contempt, that they can never be perfect enough, that they can never be good enough, that they're going to be judged. And by the way, that doesn't make them come over to your side. That doesn't help to educate them. That doesn't make them less racist. In fact, a lot of, you know, sometimes they're like, oh, well, if you're already going to say I'm racist, let me go with the people who are actually racist, who are welcoming of me, and let me go down that rabbit hole. So it has, if your intent is to combat racism, to combat misogyny, to combat these truly evil things, I don't think that you're achieving the goal that you're looking to achieve here. Yeah, a lot of that I agree with. I'm not totally sure I agree with the idea that like, oh, if these people reject me, like... Whoops, got to become a racist now. Well, I'm not no, sure but, I'm on board with that. Well, but that's the way human beings work. Like if this, I mean, I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do. Or I know you're not saying but, it's the right thing to but do. But like if you see this group is shunning me and this group is accepting me, then yeah, a lot of times people meld their beliefs to be with the in-group that's accepting okay, of them. Are, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of our politics. There are gradations. My sure. point is, if you go and join the fucking Boogaloo Boys or you go sure. and join some neo-Nazi movement, I'm not going to be like, yeah. oh, is it because you were canceled? Is sure, that why you're at, all of a sudden a neo-Nazi? Sure, but look at, like, look at what Dan was saying about West Virginia and people who are working class there used to vote solidly Democratic. And look, there are plenty of problematic views in West Virginia, as there are across the country. But the biggest reason that he identified, and this has been my experience working in that region too, that people move from left to right was because of the sense that they were looked down on, that they were they were getting this contempt and this judgment rather than, hey, let me bring you along. Let's be in this together. Let's move forward together. It was contempt, judgment, you're terrible, you're racist. And so it's like, fine, you say I'm racist, I'm going to vote for the guy that you say is I, racist I think, too. I think you're largely correct. I just don't want to take away all agency from those people oh, of course and not. solely put the no, blame on like the people on yeah, the left. Of course not. Yeah. But look, again, we're talking about societal trends, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, people have agency, right? They should have good views, whether or not like the people who have those good views were nice to them or not. 100% the case. But you also just have to look 
nationwide at the trends that we've seen and understand why some of these regions have shifted so hard to the right. And I do think this this sense of contempt and condescension is a big part of that. I think that's a big part of it. I also don't think we should understate the impact of the fake populism. I think without the fake populism, that other stuff doesn't fully land. I think you need the fake populism to be married with the acceptance of yeah. the culturally conservative views in but order you know, for that in to 2020, land. 2020, he didn't even have the fake populism And he fucking anymore. lost. And he fucking lost. That's the point. Barely. I know, but he lost. And in the, but in those places, he did better than ever. Better than ever. Let me give my, because you said, oh, let me give you my friendliest interpretation of, yeah. of what, where these people are coming from. My interpretation is at the same time a little more lenient than you, but also a little tougher than you. So... Mm -hmm. The more lenient part is that I think a lot of these people, the ones on the left who are doing cancel culture, the ones on the right who are doing it, they're doing it for religious reasons and they're doing it for political reasons. The ones mm -hmm. on the left, I think they're doing it because they think this is what activism is. They mm -hmm. think activism is like going on Twitter and saying, I'm really against racism and that's racist. And now I'm doing activism. I think that's what they think it is. And they want to be part of something that's bigger than them. And my issue with it is that it's lazy as fuck because you chose this, which is really not activism. It's slacktivism. Mm -hmm. And the real stuff that you could be a part of that's bigger than you that actually means something requires fucking work, requires like Medicare for all organizing. You have to learn about the fact that single payer systems are objectively better than non-single payer systems. You have to actually do the homework. Then you actually have to actually have to reach out to, you know, whoever, uh, DSA or national nurses or whoever, or get involved in anti-war activism. But in order to do that, you need to know that the wars are wrong and illegal and offensive and based on lies. And But see, that's the thing. Like, a lot of that stuff is not is not readily available in society. Like, you need to be looking in the right places to learn those hard to learn lessons. And so instead what people do is they want to be part of something bigger than them and they go to the laziest, easiest thing they can, which is like, I'm going to show everybody I'm a good person. Right. And I'm not racist and that is racist. And so now I'm just going to call everybody fucking racist or I'm going to, you know, waste my time online all day saying dumb shit, which makes me a little bit of a hypocrite because I say dumb shit online. <laughs> like, that's kind of my job description is to say dumb shit online. That's <laughs> why you're opposed to cancel culture. Because <laughs> yes, you exactly. know it could certainly come for you. Well, listen, and I will say, <laughs> anybody who actually knows working people, you know who they talk like? Kyle Klinsky on Twitter circa 2011, <laughs> 2012. Every single worker has... Comments like my Twitter feed from that era all day, every day. I've never met a worker who's all like, you know, Put I have the rubber. correct opinions about everything. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> None of them are like that. Workers aren't like, like that. Regular people are not like that. I mean, and that's why a lot of the pushback to our view on this is, as I was saying with Dan, like, oh, you're just upset about who's drawing the lines that's now. Right. Now that it's like mm -hmm. marginalized people are drawing the lines. But that's just not my experience with maybe that's true in certain cases, but that's just not my experience with who's doing the canceling. It's mostly people are pretty privileged, pretty comfortable, doing pretty well and are trying to associate themselves with this idea that they're part of a more virtuous community. Yeah, mm -hmm. They're trying to I think that's a that's a very nice interpretation of like they want to feel like they're part of something. And in fairness, there aren't a lot of outlets where they feel like 
I can actually translate my actions into progress. So this is the fallback. Right. So fire Roseanne or something. Yeah. So yes, that's what it comes <laughs> down to. That's what it comes down yeah. to. Yeah. So. Or even worse, just like fire this random person that no one even knows and has zero power and is like just casually having their life ruined. Yeah. And that's that's the worst one. I would I would submit that that is worse than, than going after the one with power. I would yeah. just say that as a matter of principle, I still would defend the ones in power if if they didn't actually cross the line that I think should be the line. You I know what you. I mean? I got you. So anyway, uh, quick shameless plug. If you're listening to this on audio and not watching it on video, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Uh, tip $5 a month on Substack, and you will get this show Friday, which is a day early, and you'll get the video of it, which is awesome. Um, and, you know, if not, fine, bro. Keep listening on audio. Do it on Substack. Whatever. It is what it is. <laughs> um. Thanks for hanging out with us, guys, this week. We will see you again next week. <laughs>